Hi, today we're joined with Sung Min Park, guest co-host and tutor at the Business Communication Lab, along with Permjot Balia, fund manager, entrepreneur, and mentor in residence here at the Sam and Walton College of Business, to talk more about this season's topic of innovation and offer some greater insights into the development process. Permjot has a lot of experience and qualification in this area, and we're so thankful that you're able to have some time off to talk to us and offer the listeners a little bit more of advice. Thank you, so, thank you guys so much for joining in. Before we get started, I just want to do some quick introductions so our listeners get to know you guys a little bit more about what you do. Sung Min, since you'll be co-hosting, let's just get ahead and start with you. Hi guys, my name is Sung Min Park and I'm one of the new Business Communication Lab tutors. And thank you for that warm welcome and I'm super excited to be on the podcast. So I'm a marketing major with a minor in real estate finance. So the reason why I was so excited when you asked me to be on the podcast is because I'm so I'm super into multimedia synchronization as I want to make uh, ads in the future. So podcasts and making videos and stuff like this is right up my alley. And I also help with the social media team and going to be a co-host for the biz talk. So I'm um, thank you guys for having me. No problem. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, Permjot, would you mind sharing a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Great to be here. Thank you very much. I'm actually the mentor in residence, as you said, at the uh, Sam Walton School um, for Business at the University of Arkansas. Uh, I've been working with uh, businesses in Arkansas now since around 2011, so 10 years. So this is my 10th anniversary. And uh, really, really enjoyed my time in Arkansas. I'm there about three or four times a year. Sadly, I haven't been there uh, for the, in the last 12 months for understandable obvious reasons. So it's great to have an opportunity to talk to people through this medium. So thank you very much indeed for the opportunity to speak. Yeah, well, perfect. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to be on the podcast. So as you already know, this season, we're focusing on innovation. So I want to start off with a very basic question, but a very important one. What does innovation mean to you? Kara, that's a very interesting question. It's a great question to start with. And lots of lots of people have lots of different definitions. And I actually think the best definition I came across was the one issued by the government of New Zealand. And it's simply the uh, innovation is the successful exploitation of new ideas. As simple as that. And I think sometimes people get very carried away with definitions. And sometimes you have these very, very long conversations. The UK government's definition of innovation is very, very long winded. So I just love the idea. It is the successful exploitation of new ideas. So it's new and successful. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. And it's good to uh, focus on the basics um, after all, because I feel like that really is the root of all like projects and like anything that like succeeds always starts with a very basic idea. And I feel like a lot of times um, people get so caught up in like trying to come up with something super complicated um, mm -hmm. to just kind of stand out. And sometimes it's just like the basic necessities is what you need to focus on. And that's what comes up with the best innovative um, thoughts. Absolutely. I, I always remember being uh, uh, at Duracell as a sales representative working for uh, Duracell and uh, MBA students will know this. People agonize all the time differentiating between sales and marketing and Duracell had a great definition. The salesperson's job is to make sure the batteries are on the shelf. The marketing person's job is to make sure they don't stay there. And I just love that definition. And I think, and I've learned from that and that was very early on in my career that um, 
brilliant people make things simple and people who are trying to make themselves sound more intelligent than they actually are try to complicate things they use long-winded words jargon whereas i think um simplicity is just so powerful i completely agree with that. that yeah well awesome so um so what is your favorite part you would say about being an entrepreneur and what would be like your personal approach to innovation? So I don't really think I'm an entrepreneur. I think I'm entrepreneurial and I've done things and I've worked with others, but I wouldn't describe myself as an entrepreneur. Uh, I've, I've co-founded businesses, been successful, been unsuccessful. The, the, the bit I enjoy most as, a, as, as someone in the entrepreneurial ecosystem is working with entrepreneurs and helping them on their journey and being very very supportive because it's 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 a very it's it's a very insane thing to do uh, when you look at um, successful founders that there are very few of them very few of them and the vast majority of people aren't you know by definition exceptional and often people who achieve exceptional success in any field in any field pay an extraordinarily heavy price in other areas of their life. And with entrepreneurship, the thing I enjoy is working with people and helping them by, by being aware through experience of some of the pitfalls they can avoid and how to navigate. And your job really is to guide people because um, they don't have a map for the journey. And you've been on that journey with other people. So you can just guide the way. And I, I think that's the best bit for me of being... Uh, a coach, a mentor, uh, working with people. Awesome. Uh, Kiara, could I ask my question now? Oh yeah, well, of course. Um, so uh, for our international business students, uh, if you guys weren't aware, Mr. Permja is uh, located in London. And I wanted to ask a question about, do you have any differences from businesses in European culture compared to American culture? Yeah, that's a great question. Now I actually live in Canada. So I'm actually oh, okay. I'm, I'm calling you from Canada, but originally from London, and I'm in London three or four times a year. And certainly when I started working with Arkansas, I was based in, in London. But um, there, there are huge differences, huge differences, just as there are huge differences if you've been to New Orleans and then you go straight from New Orleans to Seattle. It's like you're visiting two different countries. Um, East Coast, West Coast, very, very different. The, the mi middle of America is extraordinarily different. So there are huge different cultural practices, business practices. Um, the thing I like about Arkansas, and I'm not an expert on the US, I, I know a little bit about Arkansas and that would be the extent of my knowledge. Um, people are extraordinarily friendly. Uh, trust is a huge thing. Um, a lot of things in Arkansas are done on the basis of relationships and trust and people giving you their word. Um, ironically, in London, despite the uh, one of the things I've done, and I still operate a fund management business in London, and people always think of the finance uh, and, and think of the city of London in particular as being very, very fast moving harsh. Your word is your bond is very, very important in London as well. To, to run a business that is going to last more than one cycle. Um, right. you have to establish a reputation so in that respect working in finance in the city and working in Arkansas I found uh, integrity uh, your word means a great great deal I mean yes Ronald Reagan said trust is good contracts are better but I find in in places like Arkansas and, and, and uh, London 
trust matters a great deal. Yeah, that's awesome. And that kind of leads to another question um, that I did have. What do you think um, is the best way to approach networking and just really building those professional relationships at such an early age? Yeah, one of the things you do notice culturally, uh, I think Canadians and Americans are very, very different uh, from each other. And uh, I think England and uh, America is actually more similar than Canada, which is I found very strange uh, about the way people approach, approach networking. In America and in England, I found that networking is very much a got to get through the numbers, got to, you know, touch this many hands, got to, got to really work the room. Whereas I find in, uh, for me, effective networking is, it's okay to meet just one or two people, but have really good conversations, authentic conversations. So for me, the power of networking is where you just meet one or two people and you click and you create authentic relationships. I actually, uh, people say I'm very, very well networked. I know lots of people. I actually hate networking events. You'll never see me at a networking event. I, I like to network with people on a one-to-one -one basis. I'll meet people. And if I click with them, I'd like to get to know them. Uh, I have some very, very good friends in Arkansas, people like uh, Jeff Amarai and Sarah Goforth. And I've not met any of them in a, in a networking event. I've met them through, you know, uh, Jeanette Belitha Collins, people like that. There are so many people like that. I don't want to embarrass people by, by not including them. And I, was, and I came to Arkansas through uh, somebody I met called Nim Chow, who's one of the students there and, and was a student there, now a very, very successful entrepreneur. Um, but I never met any of these people through networking. I met them at events, but, you know, I was very relaxed about it's okay to meet just one or two people and click rather than, oh, there are 100 people at this event. Let me get through all 100. Right. And I think that's a very interesting approach because um, a lot of times um, students are taught more so of like, hey, like go to all these like networking events and like try to connect with like as many people as possible on LinkedIn. Um, but really, truly, like what really matters is like that deep connection because you can know a lot of names. Um, but if you don't have the authentic relationship, like you're not really going to get anywhere. Um, so I really I really do love that. Um, I know that in my past. Yeah, Kara, if, sorry, mm -hmm. so you know, in your class, my apologies. Oh, no, you're totally good. In your class, you're about to tell me something. Oh, yes. So um, I was just talking about like how in my classes and stuff like that, like that's something that's really put out to network with a lot of different students and a lot of professionals, either at networking events or through LinkedIn. Um, but I have experienced kind of like what you said, specifically with my past internship, um, how important it is to communicate and get to know the other individual on a personal level. And that that's really truly what opens the gates to a lot more opportunities. Um, I remember one of my internships, um, I thought it was so strange, like the interview process, but it was like the first interview process was like normal, you know, like you sat down and have a little chit chat, whatever. Um, the second round, however, I showed up and the lady was like, okay, like you're going to come with me. We're going to go take a walk. This was in downtown Dallas, Texas. And we walked into this coffee shop and she's like, well, before we get started, let's just grab some coffee. 
And we ended up sitting there and talking for like two hours. And in my mind, like, you know, my heart was kind of racing a little bit because I'm like, this is weird. Like, she's not asking me or like telling me anything about the job. Like, what are we doing here? And it wasn't until the last like 10 to 15 minutes that she told me um, a little bit more about the job. And then she was like, this was a really good conversation. Like, I'm glad that we have the, like had this talk. Um, I really think that, you know, we have a strong connection and I think that you will be like a good um, personality, you know, to have in the company. And so basically like what they were trying to do was to just kind of see um, if that connection was there and if like your personality and like your goals and your aspirations kind of aligned with the company. But I had just never really seen that approach um, in an interview process. And so I kind of took that a little bit more, like when it comes to networking events or like networking with people, I'm like, wow, like I was, I, I was feeling a lot more loyal to her and to that company. Like I had other, other internships, you know, like available, but I just, I had that connection with her that I was like, oh, I don't want to let her down for like putting this job down. Like, no, like, I think this is going to be a great place to work at, um, which I thought was super interesting. I have never heard of anybody else doing interviews like that, but that just kind of reminded me of, of that experience, what you said. And that's great. Thank you for sharing. I, it's uh, interesting to learn. Uh, thank you for sharing. Cause um, I think the other problem with networking is, and you just beautifully illustrated that through the story about your interview. I think when you're networking, you're kind of taught to have an elevator pitch or have a 20 second intro. And it's really exhausting if you are the recipient of a hundred pitches. And what, what people crave are what you experienced, Kiara, which was a coffee. People crave, just, just talk to me. What did you watch on TV last night? What's your favorite show on Netflix? What, just, just what's the last book you read? What did you like about it? People crave those kind of connections. And if you go to a networking event, if the first thing I asked you was, hey, nice to meet you. Where was the last place you went on holiday? What did you like about it? It is so false. It is so insincere. It is so, oh, you've read a book about networking. Whereas if we just have a gradual conversation, it's, it's, it's much more authentic. So thank you for sharing. Sorry, Sung, you were going to say something. Uh, I said, I was going to say that I completely agree with both of you guys. Uh, in order to have long and lasting bonds, I feel like you guys need to connect beyond the business level and connect at a personal level, like Kiara was saying. And I feel like it's just great that many people are moving towards something like that, where we can be casual and just meet up for coffee and just talk about anything going on in life. And I feel like the more casual and the more friendship like it is, the stronger the bond. Yeah, it, I, I've always wanted to come to Arkansas. It's very strange. I was, a, you know, growing up in London, I was always fascinated by the United States. And uh, I became a bit of a Bill Clinton fan. And I always oh. wanted to visit Arkansas just because I wanted to visit Little Rock. Yeah. And uh, I remember being in Canada uh, <laughs> at this business plan competition and seeing that there was this team from Arkansas. And I wasn't mm -hmm. even mentoring them. They were, they were being mentored by different people. I was like, you're from Arkansas. Cool. I want to get to know you guys. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I just, it was Nim Chow and others who were working on this uh, fantastic idea. And I got to, I got to meet them, met their professor, Professor uh, Dr. Carol Reeves, who's awesome, phenomenal ambassador for the state. And she, um, you know, we clicked. And then uh, I met the guy, the, Nim, and his, his business partner, Kevin Ogden. I met them in London. Uh, at an event and I hosted them at this event and we clicked and it was that relationship then that led them to feel comfortable to say to Dr. Reeves we should invite this guy to Arkansas 
And that's how that relationship began. So even before I got to Arkansas, I'd established a deep relationship with Nim and with Kevin because we had actually spent proper time one-on-one together in London and in Winnipeg, uh, in Canada. And it's that authenticity that really matters. And I, I always remember the first time I met Jeff Amrine. We, uh, uh, Dr. Reeves and I, we were in a restaurant having a, having a meal at Bodino's. And there was this magazine, and on the front page of the magazine, the front cover, there was a picture of Jeff Amrine. And uh, Carol, uh, Carol said, oh, that's the person you're going to meet after lunch. So I picked up one of these copies, and the first thing I said to Jeff when I met him was, oh, my God, you're Jeff, can you sign this magazine <laughs> for me? And that's the very first thing. So I remember Jeff looking at me thinking, who is this guy? But we made an impression, and we clicked, and I, I just absolutely uh, fell in love with him. And he, he and Carol and all of these other great people are just... I, I was just very lucky that the first people I met in Arkansas were really, really high-quality people. From fans to business partners is crazy how things work. It is, it is. I mean, when somebody approaches you and says, "Hey, could you sign this?" You know, you could do. Yeah, it's a little bit. It could have gone badly. It it, it could have (laughs) gone very badly. And and Kiara, this is back to your interview point. It could have gone badly for you as well, and you could have said, "Oh, I don't, I don't want this." And often it's about finding that fit. And and since day one, because of the way Jeff and I met, we were able to have extraordinarily authentic, real conversations and I now think of him as a very very close friend uh, but because of that because of the way we met he could have reacted badly to are you making fun of me I don't appreciate this this is too much he, he could have it could have it could have gone badly luckily it didn't and the rest right. is history I I totally agree and I'm glad that we're you know kind of transitioning over to like that talk about uh, authenticity you know um, because I talk about this with a lot like I obviously haven't had a lot of experience since I'm still a student but um, with my previous jobs that I've had or like internships and stuff like that um, I've never been one to like complain about the jobs that I have and I've never really understood like why people like aren't content or happy with like the job situation that they're in um, but I do think that that topic that we were just talking about is a very key factor um, when you have like a mentor or a boss um, who is, you know, really wanting to know you at a deeper level and is interested in your level of success. Um, I do think that that really shapes and just kind of changes the whole atmosphere of the work and um, the environment that you're in. Um, so that's, that's fantastic. Um, I'm glad that we were able to talk about that. And then just kind of like shifting over to just like mentorship. How do you think it's best for students to just really approach um, somebody to like to become their mentor if that's something that they're interested in? Yeah, interesting question. I get asked that a lot. And um, lots of people ask me if um, I would be their mentor. And I actually don't know what that means. And the people I mentor, um, I don't, it, it's almost like, you know, no one's going to go up to, I never ever went up to Jeff Amorite or to Sarah Goforth. I never went up to Sarah and said, hey, Sarah, will you be my friend? Um, it's something that just happens. Okay. Um, there, there are other great people. And I, I personally find it very off-putting when somebody actually asks me, would I mentor them? Because I'm like, mm. I, I actually don't know what that means. I mentor a lot of people through conversations. And, and people don't realize, I, I have a lot of people who mentor me. Um, uh, Sarah Goforth, she's a great mentor to me. Uh, people like April Segerbrook, she's a great mentor to me. Uh, um, there, there's some phenomenal mentors in Trish Flanagan, phenomenal mentor. Uh, great, great people in Arkansas who act as my mentors. But if I, I think I would shock them if I said, 
oh, you know, you're a mentor of mine. Go, oh, I just thought we were having conversations. So one of the things I would say is you need to avoid labels in relationships. Um, just ask questions of people you click with. And I, I need to get to know you. I can't, I can't just agree to be a mentor because you attended a workshop and you've connected with me on LinkedIn. That isn't, right. that isn't the basis for a mentor-mentee relationship. Yeah, I, I enjoy those relationships, but I, I do find so many people want to put a label to it. It's almost like, let it, let it, let it just happen. Let it happen. You, right. you, will, you will find a mentor and you don't have to say, will you be my friend? Will you? Because that, that's how it feels like when somebody says, will you be my mentor? Will you be my friend? And it's just, it's just weird. Yeah, it is a little bit weird. Yeah, that's exactly. Was, oh, yeah. sorry. You go ahead. No, you're go okay. No, no. <laughs> I was just gonna say, uh, the more natural it is, the more natural the relationship ends up flowing. And I feel like, I feel like being natural is one of the best things to do when you're looking for something like that, and just let it come to you almost. Yeah, and, and there are people you, I mean, just in the last two weeks, there are, there are some students in Arkansas that I just warmed to. I just warmed to them. One of them was uh, a team led by Molly. I'm going to say her surname wrong, uh, Bombonata, I think. She, she is running this great little business with uh, two or three other great, great people on her team, Amanda White, uh, John Taylor, and Olga. And um, I just liked them. And we ended up, I said, hey, do you want to do another follow-up call? And we did. And now at no point did she ask me, oh, will you mentor me? Will you mentor us? No, it just happened. Uh, another great team led by um, somebody who's new to the area, Amanda Earhart, uh, clicked with her. We had a following conversation. That's it. But it was never, will you be my mentor? And I, I think, like you said, Sonny, um, let it flow. Just let it flow. Let it happen. Just ask Instead of saying, will you be my mentor? Ask them the question that you would ask them if they were your mentor. And if they want to answer, they will. If they don't want to answer, you know, they don't want to have that kind of relationship with you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the reason why I asked that question specifically, because we were just talking about the importance of like real and authentic relationships. And so I I know that that's something that sometimes students like think a little bit too much about, um, about how to you know, properly like ask somebody to be their mentor. But really what we're getting to is the same thing with networking. Um, you really have to build that relationship. And that's that's the key um, to be able to have that. And you can be a, like, other people can be your mentor. Like they don't necessarily have to have, like you said, a specific title. It's just someone that inspires you um, to be a better version of yourself and inspire you and teach you how to become a better professional overall. So I really do think that's that's great. Chiara, that is a lot of wisdom in what you just said. Um, I really like what you just said. Um, I, I'm going to use that. Uh, help you become a better version of yourself. That is, uh, I like the way you said that. Thank you. Uh, Self-development is something I'm super passionate about, um, which is great because um, innovation, in a way, it's kind of the same thing, um, just more so with right. like, a, an idea um, and sometimes a tangible product. So that's kind of like why I wanted um, to focus this podcast over innovation this semester um, because it's just another way of self-improvement. Um, so yeah, so that's awesome. Um, talking about that and like self-development and just kind of pushing people to like to be better. Um, how would you approach like in a situation where like someone doesn't think that their idea like might be that great um, but you don't want to shut it down. Like, how do you help students that 
might have, I know you work with like Macmillan Innovation Studio, um, like you just said with like team projects, but like, what if there's like an idea um, and it's good, it's a good idea, but it's just not, not there yet. How do you help promote that innovative thinking for those students? You have to build, you can't, you can't criticize without permission. And I think a lot of mentors uh, don't get that. Um, you, you, I, I, you have to give me consent to criticize you. I can't just suddenly come on the call and say, oh, son, what are you drinking? Why are you drinking that? You know, that, that's, that's just rude. That, that's, that's, that's just rude. You know, what you'd have to do is have permission. I said, son, oh, I see you're drinking that, son. Are you, are you, are you on a diet at the moment? Are you monitoring your water? You know, whatever, you, you have to have context around it. And I think you have to be careful in how you talk to people about, uh, about this stuff. One of the things, and I've learned by making lots of mistakes, and I, I did do the classic, you know, this is a terrible idea, this will never work. And then what you realize is what, what you do is a lot, of, a lot of entrepreneurs, because of their streak in them that makes them a successful entrepreneur, they end up doubling down. So you end up achieving the exact opposite of what you want to achieve. So some of the people I've mentored, they are now determined in the past, they are determined to prove me wrong rather than to prove themselves right, if that makes sense. Uh, so it's a negative rather than a positive thing. So I think if, if somebody has a terrible idea, you just ask them questions around well, how would you make money on that? How would you? So if you think something's a terrible idea, you think something's a terrible idea either because it won't work or nobody wants to buy it or that you know lots of people are doing it already. And then you have to ask questions around, well, why? what makes you think it would work? Uh, what's the basis? What's the evidence that, you, oh, that's great. And then it's an opportunity for you to learn as well. I remember this is probably well before your time, but I remember when text messages I saw my first text message on a phone when I was about 23, 24. And I thought, this is such a stupid idea. Texting will <laughs> never take off. Why would you replace a, 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 you know, you've replaced typewriters with phones type thing. Instead of writing letters, you can just phone people now. Why would you go back to a typewriter on a phone? Why, why would you do that? Why would you, why would you not just call someone and say, hey, how are you doing? So if somebody had presented to me, if somebody had pitched, text as an idea i said that's a terrible idea terrible idea if somebody had pitched the idea of an ipad to me what a terrible idea why would anybody need an ipad you could buy a laptop which is so light or you could buy a phone but i love ipads so the point is just because you're in a mentoring position it doesn't mean you actually know whether something's going to work or not i i've seen so many great pitches that i said no to because i didn't I just didn't get it, but they've gone on to be very, very successful. So don't dare to assume that just because you don't like it, it's not, it's not a good idea just because I don't get it. Right. No, I, I thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I, I think that's very important for um, anyone that's interested in innovation or like want to start like their own like ventures um, because a lot of the times um, not only does, I mean, like the idea might not be the greatest, but you don't want to kill the idea off like prematurely. Um, cause sometimes it's just a good discussion. Like you said, um, just asking questions and just learning more about like the intent behind, um, what their idea is could revolutionize it to something else. Like that small idea, you know, that maybe wasn't as fantastic in your, in your head, you know, is the stepping ground to something even better. Um, or- Absolutely. 
Yeah, exactly. Or it might be a great idea. It just needs a little bit more development, but I think it is important, like you said, to not kind of shut down. Cause I think that's the, from my perspective, from just being interested in entrepreneurship and just working with like Macmillan and, um, Enactus and organizations like that. It's like, um, entrepreneurs, I feel like they have a very strong, um, passion and connection to what they're doing. Um, and sometimes they don't necessarily take criticism the best because it kind of shuts them down, um, and just puts self-doubt. And like, that's the one thing that like, I feel like personally, um, I don't know if you guys agree with this, um, but entrepreneurships just kind of stand out is the fact that they're very confident in themselves in their product, in their idea, and they're willing to work extremely hard to get that point across. Yeah, but Kiara, you have to be careful. And as a mentor, sometimes you do have to ask difficult questions and you do have to see. You make a really good point about confidence. And, and there's, this, there's this very interesting thing about confidence versus competence. Mm. So, and, and this is where you do identify, sadly, gender and racial biases. Uh, white men, statistically, so I'm not making a political point, statistically, uh, white men tend to have much more confidence than their competence, their, their confidence level is slightly higher than their competence level. Women and ethnic visible minorities in particular, they tend to have more competence than they have confidence. So one of the things you do have to do as a mentor, as a potential investor, I've invested in, 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 in quite a few startups. One of the things you have to do is gauge whether the confidence is based on competence or whether it's confidence. And the way you, and it comes back to the first thing we said about explaining things simply. One of the things I look for is if somebody comes across as very confident, I ask them to explain something to me. And that quickly reveals to me whether it is just confidence or it's uh, competence. So Mm -hmm. that's where I I think I'm noticing increasingly when I invest in female founders, their competence is well in excess of their confidence. But in, uh, in, in young male founders, their confidence has no bearing in reality whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, that's really only, interesting. Yeah, I'm only laughing because I feel like I'm a victim of that too. Sometimes I'm not so com- competent, but I will replace that with extra bit of confidence to like, you know, just with a big, bright smile, a nice suit, just looking good. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing is, son, uh, you don't need to do that because, yeah. and, and again, uh, read, read a good book, great book over Christmas, Bob Iger, Ride of a Lifetime, talking about his years running running Disney. Mm. And he talks about this, that actually, you know, if you if you admit you don't know something, but you're willing to learn and you're willing to put the effort in and you're willing to try you get a lot more credence for that. I don't know why we live in this era where, you know, there's this whole thing, fake it till you make it, you know, right. hustle, you know, doing the hustle. You, you don't, you don't need to do that. You, you don't need to do that. And, and again, people like Jeff Emeron, who are, who are, you know, investors in startups, they talk about this a lot as well about, we want to see the steak, not the sizzle, you know? It's kind of like that one, it's not like a saying necessarily, but I feel like a lot of um, professionals tend to say this a lot and they focus on this. It's a fact of like the people who are, it gets better to have people that are willing to learn um, than people that aren't in a way, if that makes any sense. Um, So people that are willing to like put a little bit more effort, um, kind of when you were talking about how like you don't necessarily like have to know everything, but it's just like willing to work on that is a little bit more important. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, absolutely. And what's I've been doing a lot of reading recently, and and the book I've just finished reading is uh, a book that came out I think last week, um, two weeks ago. Adam Grant, you know, Think Again. And I was working with colleges in here in Canada. One of the thing is one one of the things is the ability to unlearn is becoming increasingly important. And one of my favorite wow. job interview questions is, you know, what is the last book you read and what did you learn from it? Because what the job that you're going to be doing, Chiara, another 10 years from now probably doesn't exist. One of the most useless questions we can ask a kid is what do you want to do when you grow up? Uh, because mm. they, they have such a small rep repertoire of what jobs are, you know, I want to sell ice creams or I want to do this or I want to do this or I'm going to be a firefighter or something because the repertoire of jobs they've experienced are, are, are very small. So I think learning to learn is such a critical skill. And the first step to learning, it's, it's impossible to learn if you think you already know it. And one, one of right. the things I love, one of the things I love about the University of Arkansas, especially with the MBA program, is a lot of a lot of the people I'm teaching are extraordinarily seasoned execs. They, these are very, very, very senior people who are very successful, um, and yet they treat you with a lot of respect and and they approach everything with such humility, and they mm. are willing to learn because it's impossible to learn if you know it all. Right. And um, so I, I think in, to be successful in the future. The ability to uh, to admit you don't know something, but then want to learn it, have that desire to learn, is going to be increasingly, increasingly important. I feel like the saying "you can't teach an old dog uh, new tricks" is honestly dead now. Because I feel like as long as the dog wants to learn, and let's not say dogs now, but let's say as professionals, as long as we want to grow and learn, I feel like we're boundless and we can just continue to grow. Absolutely. One of the things I did in a recent workshop in, in Arkansas, well, when I say recent, about two years ago now, um, with Deb, with the awesome Deb Williams from the office, she, uh, we, we did this workshop and um, I taught people, I'm now 50 years old, and I only learned to tie shoelaces properly about three years ago. And I, I talk, told everybody that, you know, the way we've been taught to tie shoelaces is wrong. And then I showed them because a lot of uh, a lot of the new material used in shoelaces, um, people are now often double knotting. And I looked around the room, and this was in person. I looked around the room, and I saw lots of people who double knotted. And I said, "Oh, is it? Do your do your shoelaces come undone? Is that why you do it?" So yes. I said, "Oh, that's because you're tying your shoelaces wrong." And everyone's looking at me like, "No, no, no. I'm you know I'm an adult. I know how to tie shoelaces." And then right. I taught people. I taught people how I learned recently to do my shoelaces. And what was really funny was I, I was in Arkansas a year or so after that workshop and I bumped into one of the students and I said, oh, I love that workshop. I love that workshop. So great. What did you learn about it? Thinking they're going to say networking, communication, all that, you know, strategizing goal. I said, no, it was the way you talk about shoelaces. My shoes have never come undone since. But the point <laughs> is, to your point, son, you can always, always learn new right doing things so one of the things that in adam grant's brilliant book he, he starts off by asking questions like what did walt disney do before he drew mickey mouse what, what job did he have i don't know if you know the answer to that one the other the other questions is what was the first space journey from which you could see the great wall of china um and uh you know why did they burn the witches in salem you know so there, there's some questions like that that people ask and people often have answers for them but actually 
witches weren't burnt in Salem. They weren't, they were hung, they weren't burnt, but everybody thinks they were burnt. You cannot see the Great Wall of China from space. It's a myth, you cannot. And Walt Disney did not draw Mickey Mouse, it was someone else. But so there are wow. loads and loads of these assumptions. There are loads of these assumptions that people have, but we never check back to learn. Yesterday, for example, uh, me and my wife, we were having, my wife's Canadian and we were having this thing. And I said, you should always have eggs. You shouldn't put eggs in a fridge. And she said, no. And we've been living together for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I said, no. And we, we talked about this last night. I said, you shouldn't have eggs in the fridge. And she said, no, you should. And then we realized in Europe, you shouldn't put eggs in the fridge. In North America, you should. So just, mm. and we only learned that yesterday because of, you know, I was so curious and I wanted to know who was right, who was wrong. So I Googled it and I thought, oh my gosh, we're both right. Um, <laughs> but then she said, we're in North America. So actually, technically I'm wrong. So that was, that was kind of, you know, nice. Of her. <laughs> but but, it's, but it's, it's just, sorry, I'm, I'm going way off the point, but we can always learn new things. We can always, always learn new things. And um, it's incredible how much stuff we think we know, which is utterly false. I think the day we start limiting ourselves is the day we stop growing and learning. I feel like we should never set limits. I mean, at a point when we get old enough, retiring, maybe maybe we set a limit and just relax. But I feel like at the day and age we are right now, if we set a limit, that'll that'll definitely stagnate our growth. It'll definitely slow us down. I agree. Yeah, and I definitely think that um, stemming off of that, a lot of the times, not necessarily the reason why people don't learn, but maybe the reason why they don't engage in activities where they will learn more is because they're very comfortable um, in the situation or like that, the work environment that they're in. Um, And it's like fear of kind of, you know, kind of like pushing over the edge of like learning something new and like trying to develop something else that kind of pushes people to, to not seek for more knowledge. Um, So you know, in that sense, has there ever been like a, a certain point in your career where you realize that you have to take a risk? Um, and how did that kind of turn out? Like, how did that not only like shape that specific um, opportunity, but just your approach in business and your career overall? It's, it's, it's interesting. And it's, it's really weird that there's this saying that as you get older, you become more conservative in your views. And, and I find that as I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm getting more and more, I'm getting less conservative in my views. One of the things you recognize with this whole word risk, even the idea of risk-taking is an extraordinarily, it's a view based on extraordinary privilege. Um, most of the entrepreneurs I know have not taken risks. Um, and, and, and certainly they don't think they're taking risks. And when I meet people who'd come from a background of privilege, and that's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a bad thing to have privilege, you know, it's not a bad thing, but they, they like the idea of taking risks. And that's because they have a good fallback position. Whereas a lot of people do not have a fallback position, so they can't take risks. So I, I actually haven't taken risks. Things have happened where I've had to make decisions uh, some of those decisions were made because of very, very unfortunate circumstances. But I've never said, I've never had that luxury of sitting down one moment and saying, I need to take a risk. I want to do this. You, you make some decisions about where to buy property, what to invest in, do this. Those are all risks. Of, uh, of course, it's angel investing is an extraordinary risky thing to do. 
I've invested in a lot of companies in, in Arkansas. Most of those companies haven't uh, succeeded. That's okay. But I, I took the risk knowing that my risk was limited to the money that I've put into those companies. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I find even the idea that entrepreneurs take risks is not... You look at all the great companies that have been built, very few of them can turn around and say there was this moment when it was, you know, do I do this or do I do this? And, you know, a big risk. Most things evolve, but we like we like to invent this narrative. We like Malcolm Gladwell talks about an outliers. We love to invent this narrative, especially in North America. We we love this idea of the individual, and it's the individual that made this bold decision. It was a Steve Jobs who did this and did this. It was it was you know Heinz or Kellogg's who you know did this. And, and Bill Gates. And then you realize when you learn more about these individuals that actually it was a series of progressive steps. There wasn't one moment where they took a, uh, took a risk. Uh, Steve Jobs' business partner, co-founder of Apple, Wozniak, Steve Wozniak, he refused to leave his job. He was working two jobs. He was at HP and Apple at the beginning. And the research now shows that actually uh, entrepreneurs who stay at their jobs right until the business takes off are far more likely to be successful than those that take risks. So even this idea of risk-taking has to be seen in the context of what do you mean by taking risks? Because I, I actually tell people, try not to take risks. Try to do things that stretch you, make you feel slightly uncomfortable, but only slightly uncomfortable. Right, so a little bit more like calculated risks. Yeah. Yeah. In my, in my opinion, I feel like everything we do, there's risk involved. We just get better at managing the risk. And once you realize how to manage the risk, you can mitigate it and not have a big enough like spillover or effect on you later in the future or presently or whenever the risk is present, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I mean, there is there are risks. And, and sometimes when you say risk taking, often people say they've worked out that it might appear to somebody else that you're taking a risk, but to the people doing the thing, it's it's um, it's a certainty. The biggest risk I took was launching a fund management business in, in the midst of a financial crisis in 2008. And I, I can tell you when, when I did that business, it didn't feel risky to me. It felt risky to other people, but they didn't have the insights and the knowledge that I had. And that's one thing you've got to understand about entrepreneurs. When you're a mentor looking at these things, you say, oh my God, that's incredible risky. What you've got to do is you've got to understand and talk to your entrepreneur. What is it about them that makes them confident that it's not a risk the way you perceive it is a risk? Wow. Yeah, that's definitely very insightful. And that's like good to know because maybe it's just like the, I don't want to say like the Hollywood's perception of it, but kind of like when you start watching like shows like Shark Tank or, you know, even if it's not business related, like American Idol or like The mm. Voice, something like that, like people stress so much on like the risk taking or like the, uh, like the hardships like endured within um, them starting up a business or they um, doing this, you know, talent that they have. And really it's good to know, you know, that you don't necessarily have to have those risks in order to be successful. And that probably a lot of that is just like a media's perception. Um, yeah, I, I also innovation. find that when, when you look at people who go to war, that's risky. Yeah. You know, veterans, the reason I have so much respect for veterans is that is a risky, risky, risky thing to do. To say, I'm going to go 
and fight in a country, you know, that I didn't know about. And I'm going to risk my life. That's risky. I have nothing but admiration for people who take that level of risk. Being an entrepreneur, that's not risky. Come on. Come on. You know, if it doesn't There's work always... out. No, if it doesn't work out, you're going to get yourself a great job. Yeah. How's that a risk? Seriously. What's the worst thing that could happen to you as an entrepreneur? The business doesn't work out and you've got a great, great, great job. And you've learned mm. lots of things in doing it. Um, that isn't to say that you don't now. You do put your family at risk. Entrepreneurs do, do have pay an extraordinary heavy price in terms of family and how disruptive it is. But for the, for the entrepreneur themselves, they absolutely love doing it. They love it. I've never met an entrepreneur who did, whether they succeeded or failed, who regretted doing that. And to me, risk is where you do something and then you wish you hadn't done it. That's risky. Yeah, for sure. And definitely, like, even if that, you know, project or that, you know, whatever it is that you were working on doesn't necessarily like work out in the way that you wanted, there's still so many skill sets and so much experience Absolutely. that you take away from that, that you can imply somewhere else, um, whether it be a different business venture, whether it be like working, you know, for a company, whether it just be for just common relationships mm. with people. Um, it's all things that you learn and you're going to use. So I guess I understand what you're saying about it not necessarily being a risk. And I think that's really yeah. important for people to understand. And, and it's, it's an interesting thing. People who experience and report higher levels of satisfaction with their life and higher levels of happiness are people who've experienced um, a healthy amount of failure. People who have never experienced failure tend to report lower levels of satisfaction and happiness with their life, which is really interesting. Do you think that's because when failure does come, they just take it harder because they're not like accustomed to it? I don't know. I don't, I don't know enough about the research. I mean, I'm, I'm theorizing. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's I was just But my, my opinion is um, that when you... So again, Malcolm Gladwell does talk about this. About he talked about the Blitz in London and 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 the Nazis were trying to uh, su you know submit Londoners and, and get them terrified. And actually, the Blitz had the com complete opposite effect. It, it it made Londoners solidified because when you survive something, it's like cancer survivors. When you survive something, the worst that life could throw at you was thrown at you, and you survived. You know, oh, yeah. it's going to be okay. Life is going to be okay. Uh, when you go through uh, big traumatic issues at work through entrepreneurship, the, the uh, afterwards, it's like when you don't receive bad news. You know, if you know your dad, your parents are angry with you about something. The worst feeling I have as a, I had as a kid was the period between knowing that my dad knew and he hadn't spoken to me yet because I just didn't know how angry he was going to be, what's going to happen. It was the not knowing how bad things were that was worse than once he told me off, once he did whatever, it was like, phew, you know, the punishment is never as bad as I thought it was going to be, but it was that, mm -hmm. that, that period. So I think a lot of things are when we, when we think about risks and when we think about innovation and when we think about all these things, once we've done this thing that we think is a big risk or other people tell us is a big risk, we're okay with it. We have this serenity that comes from, well, the worst thing that people said could happen has happened and I'm okay. I'm still here. Yeah. That's a really Adver great men mentality to have. Honestly. I agree too. Adversity and failure definitely make stronger men and women for sure. 
Yes. Um, okay, cool. So just to like kind of wrap things up a little bit, um, I had one major like final question. Um, if you could go back in time to like college and just kind of um, see like how your career path would, would look like, is there anything specifically that you would change or is there any advice that you would give for students that are in college right now um, to get to that level of either professionalism or whatever their level of success is, since it's not the same for everybody? Yeah, I, I, the, the only advice I'd give me, and I can only talk about me, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's patronizing for me to assume that any advice I give to a student in Arkansas would be relevant. Um, the only advice I'd give the younger me is be less angry. You know, it's going to be okay. Uh, I was very angry. I wanted to. I wanted to fix the world when I was younger, and it, I, I didn't realize that people who disagreed with me weren't my enemies. They just they just disagreed with me. That's all. They, these are great people, and one of the things Arkansas has taught me is, you know, without getting too controversial, politically, my best friends in Arkansas aren't necessarily aligned with me in my political views. And that's okay, because my politics aren't who I am. It's just one small part of who I am. And these people who I, I, I think of as extraordinary dear friends, they're friends. They, they, they just see that the world should and could look better if we did things differently. I disagree with them, that's okay. But we still do fundamentally want the same thing, which is we want a better world. And I, I, I just wish I could tell the younger, younger me don't be so angry. Don't don't try to. Don't be so convinced in your own moral superiority. I love that 100%. And I think I'm going to apply that to my life as of right now. I feel like it's easy to get angered when someone disagrees with you, especially because right now we, at a at a young age, we feel like everything we say and do is so right, when in fact we do so many things wrong and can learn from them. And this comes back to the unlearning. This comes back to the, why are my views the way they are? Why do other people hold, why do other great people, I mean, as long as I see them as good people, why do really, really good people hold different views to me? It's not because they're suddenly evil or, you know, dur during the daytime, they're great people at nighttime, they become these monsters. No, these are good people. They just see things differently. So then the, the curiosity in me is to find out and to go on this journey of discovery to say, why have they that their views been shaped the way they are? Why are my view why why are my views the way they are? It's not about being right or wrong. It's about the perspective we come we come into a situation with. And um, you know, I, I think lots of social media stuff. We're in these echo chambers where we just surround ourselves with people who increasingly validate our opinions and increasingly castigate those who hold different opinions as enemies, as evil. And it was interesting how angry people used to get about the Apple versus Microsoft divide about, you know, 20 years ago. It was just like, relax. And before then it was Atari versus Commodore computer games. And there were these tribes, you know, it's like, and, and then football, it's really interesting how many footballers, I, I'm a big fan of a football club and we hate, and I use the word hate, and we hate our opponents. And then you think the only reason they're Tottenham supporters, which, which are a loathsome particular type of human being. But if you're a Tottenham supporter, you're a Tottenham supporter because you were born in a different area or you had parents who supported Tottenham. You're not, you're not evil. You were just born into supporting Tottenham, you know? It's really interesting. Anyway, sorry, I'm digressing. But yeah, that was a long answer. 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, I have like a really close friend of mine. Um, she's very much like that. She gets very, very angry um, when it comes to people like disagreeing. But I have found myself, I, you know, specifically like this past year with all, you know, everything that was going on, I kind of noticed, I'm like, I have such a wide range of friends um, you know, from all different perspectives. And I think it's really interesting because for me, like it's never really impacted me that much. Um, but also um, I'm an international business student. So for me, it's like super interesting. Like what you said, it's about perspective and just understanding somebody's perspective. You don't necessarily have to agree with the perspective, but just understanding like their backgrounds, their culture, their values, because everyone comes from a different place. And so um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's because like I was born um, somewhere else, like outside of the country. um, And I was just kind of like exposed to that firsthand when I moved here um, that I kind of realized, you know, like, oh, like my culture is a little different. And this is like how they do theirs. And so I don't know if that's how like I have that opening openness, I feel like to exploring like new cultures and stuff. But I just feel like, if you're understanding and if you're willing to learn, which is yeah, yeah. a lot of what we're saying, um, you know, there's, it works, you know, like stuff that works here works for us because we live here, but stuff yes, works differently yeah. somewhere else as well. It's, it's not it's, wrong. It's just different. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, going to South Africa, I did a lot of work in South Africa. So in most cultures, uh, men will open the door. Yeah. In most cultures, men, men will open the door in South Africa. Um, men always go first into a room. They won't open the door for a lady. They, they will go into the room first. And you're like, wow, this is just interesting. This Is this because of this, you know, macho culture that men have there? And then you realize actually it's because of animals, dangerous animals. And men will always go into a room first because there might be a, a, a lion or a, or, or, a, or, a, or, a, or a monkey or something in the room. So therefore men go first. So it's, it's interesting that you, you could jump to, oh, they're chauvinistic pigs. And then you... Uh, rewind a bit it, it's interesting to look at india where um culturally um more women more as a percentage of the workforce more women work in saudi arabia than in india you know mm. and, and i mean clearly something's very very wrong culturally where you know in a country like saudi arabia you have a higher number of women participating in labor force than it than in india and then you realize there's lots and lots of cultural reasons now i personally happen to think those cultural reasons are invalid but there are some reasons there where uh, the number one reason women give up working in India is because they have a husband, not because they have kids, which which mm. which is strange. But the point again is when you travel, when you experience all this stuff, you see, wow, the world is very different. And what works for us, you can still you can still criticize, you can still have your opinion that yeah, I don't I don't agree with this. You can still have that opinion, but you don't have to be so angry about it. Yes, it's kind of stepping away a little bit from yeah. like self centralism. I think it's it's what it's called. Or something oh, like, I that. like that. I yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just seeing everything from your point of view and just yes. wiping everything out of the way. Um, you don't have to agree yes. with them, but just understanding like what's the reasoning behind it. It's like people get very angry about vegans and, and people get very angry about people who aren't vegans. And, and it's like, you know, if someone's a vegan, great. <laughs> if someone's not a vegan, that's personal choice. It's, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Let's, let's all be less angry about stuff. I totally agree. Um, Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're at it, follow us on Instagram at Walton Talk. That is all for this week. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to have more casual conversations about professional banks.